are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Today, we'll be chatting with Alex Wolf from Locked On Knicks as New York appears to be the apparent front runners for Utah Jazz star Donovan Mitchell, but at what potential cost? Then we chat with Matt George from Locked On Kings as Keegan Murray has been absolutely balling out for Sacramento. Has he been the most impressive rookie in Summer League? Lastly, as the host of Locked on Rockets, I'll be discussing Jabari Smith Jr. looking like a transformational defensive piece for Houston, but has he been the best rookie for the Rockets so far? As always, we appreciate you for making Locked on NBA your first listen each and every day. We are free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. Also, today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online. It's where the game starts. The New York Knicks seem to be the apparent front runners to land Utah Jazz star Donovan Mitchell, but at what potential cost? Joining us now is Alex Wolf from Locked On Knicks. You can follow on Twitter at the Alex Wolf. Now, Alex, before we get into what you know a potential you know trade permutation looks like between the Knicks and the Jazz, you know, as it's centered on you know Donovan Mitchell potentially exiting Utah, just on the surface here, who do you think has more leverage as these discussions are currently ongoing between the Utah Jazz and the New York Knicks? At risk of you know getting called a homer like I do on my own channel by visiting fans. Uh, I think the Knicks have more leverage here, honestly. Uh, I don't think the Knicks are in any sort of rush to make this move, you know. And maybe you could say the same about the Jazz. I could sort of see it from both perspectives, but I think the Knicks are less, less in a rush, if that makes sense. Like, you know, they're just, they're at a point where they have young talent. They have a, I won't call him marquee, but a, a good free agent acquisition that they feel great about that they just added in Jalen Brunson, who solves a problem at the point guard spot that they've had for forever, um, you know, and is going to give them an efficient, you know, good player at that position for the first time in like uh, 20 years. I don't know. Um, and, you know, it's and hopefully one that will be with the team long term and have long term success there. Uh, unlike, you know, you could say like Derrick Rose, whatever. But anyway, to get back to the the actual like Mitchell topic, like I think the Knicks would be happy. They would be fine going into this season without him. You know what I mean? And they would be fine going this whole season without him. And I think the Jazz might potentially run into a scenario where if they go the whole season with Donovan Mitchell, his trade value becomes less because then he has less years that he's under contract, um, you know, before reaching free agency again. A year passes. The situation, I'm sure, will get messier. At this point, Mitchell's been pretty civil, you know, honestly, with this whole thing. Like, there's been some has he, hasn't he, as far as, like, putting in a quote-unquote official trade demand or whatever. Um, and so, that you know, there's a lot of stuff going around about, you know, just how forceful has he been with this whole thing and all that, as my cat says hello. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it ultimately, like, you know, I, th I think that Mitchell um, at any point could turn this on its head by being more forceful with like, I want out. And if he makes that call and decides to say like, I want out, then suddenly the clamps get more on the jazz. And I think they would then have to be more inclined to make this deal faster. 
Yeah, take it from somebody who was uh, very, very close to the uh, whole situation with the James Harden exodus here in Houston, that going into the season with a disgruntled star, somebody who you know maybe doesn't want to be with the organization anymore, it, it hardly, if ever, works out well. Shout out to the Brooklyn Nets, who are facing a similar dilemma just down the road from the Knicks with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. But when you look at what this potential, and I do think when you look at the Knicks perspective of things, right, they kind of already feel like they're walking away winners this offseason, having picked up Jalen Brunson. So I, I'm inclined to agree with you there, Alex. I don't think the Knicks are under any pressure to make this deal happen for Donovan Mitchell. If it works out, great. And, and as far as what it would look like if it potentially works out, what to you is an appropriate, realistic amount to give up for a star player like Donovan Mitchell now that he's available? Well, so there's been all this talk, right, about like, you know, Ainge is thinking, Danny Ainge of the the Jazz now, formerly of the Celtics, is thinking like, I need to beat the, you know, Gobert trade package with Mitchell. Uh, to which I'm like, I don't know about that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not necessarily saying that the Knicks should look to be like, we need to come in way less than the Gobert package, because obviously Donovan Mitchell is a fantastic player in his own right, but as far as the roles that they played in the Jazz's success, like, I think that it's roughly equal. You know what I mean? Like, Rudy Gobert's not nothing. Like, yes, he might be limited on the offensive end, but defensively, he can single-handedly turn your team into, like, a top-10 defense. And that's hugely valuable in the NBA, which explains why the Timberwolves, looking at it from the perspective of, like, we might be one piece away, you know, looked at this and said, let's throw the, you know, throw the whole boat at Utah for him and, you know, hopefully make a run with Cat and, you know, Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell and Gobert. And so then, you know, from the Knicks and, and Mitchell perspective, I think that they will probably try to beat the picks compensation, uh, at least on the surface. And this is where like those picks come in that they got for trading out of the draft, uh, or at least out of the first round of this year's draft with, you know, trading 11 and through other machinations, you know, they sent out Kemba Walker and a fistful of protected seconds and stuff like that, too, to eventually get this all done. But when the dust settled, they now have two fairly heavily protected first rounders from uh, Washington and Detroit that start this next draft in 2023. But both are so protected that they probably won't convey until at the earliest, like 2025, maybe. And I think the latest that they can is like 2026 or 27. Um, and then they have the 2025 Milwaukee pick top four protected. So I think all three of those will go out. That gets you up to three first round picks, at least on the surface. Um, they also have Dallas's 2023 pick top 10 protected from the Kristaps Porzingis trade, which probably will convey this coming year. Uh, then they also have obviously all of their own picks going forward. So if I was going to fathom a guess of where the pick compensation might settle in. I think they will probably say, fine, you want us to like, at least on the surface, beat what Minnesota gave you as far as just pure volume. They're not all going to be unprotected, but sure, you can have like five first round picks, which would be those four protected ones, you know, from those various sources that I mentioned. And I would say they would probably go their own 2023 pick unprotected and say, you know, we figure we'll probably be pretty good this year. So fine. You can have that one as well. Unprotected. Uh, I think maybe then you would also get a swap or two in there, maybe like 2024. And then if if Utah really presses like 2026, which would also beat the the Minnesota trade uh, in the sense that they gave up four first round picks and one swap and all those picks were unprotected. But again, with Gobert on the team now, plus the core that they have, you figure they're going to be good for a while. They're taking a little bit of a risk with the unprotected thing. 
you know, like four or five years down the line, but the first two or three of those shouldn't be too crazy of a risk for them. Um, and then as far as player compensation goes, that's where it gets a little more tricky from the Knicks perspective. Like I, I get the feeling maybe Dude, Quentin... if you're, if you're the Knicks, if you feel yeah. like you can get away from this trade and do yeah. it without like giving up like an RJ Barrett, do you, do you just say, you know what? We come out on top of this trade, no matter what, if we can hold on to RJ. I, from my perspective, if they gave up, like, let's say if we're looking at it through that prism. And so then it's like, okay, so if they're just concerned with uh keeping rj then like are they doing um you know obi and quickly and grimes and deuce and cam reddish i mean that's a lot of players and at that point i would look at it and say okay did you just kind of do yourself a disservice like i i don't think any knicks fan wants to see like the carmelo anthony trade all over again where you know you get a good player and are in a situation where like you could be a playoff team for a number of years with the core that you have but your ceiling is capped by the fact that you just don't have the assets to make anything else happen. Um, and, and so I don't think that Leon Rose would take a deal like that because I think that he would look at this as like not the final move. Uh, so I think that he would want to hold on to a number of the young players, whether that means like Quentin Grimes and Obi Toppin goes out or something. I, one idea that I've kicked around that I would love if it happened, like I think the time to move on from Julius Randle should be sooner than later. So perhaps you loop in a team like the Lakers that have a Russell Westbrook that they're trying to get rid of uh, and, you know, fill that giant salary slot with someone a little more useful. Maybe you send like Julius Randle and Derek Rose to LA who then can send a little bit of extra pick compensation or like a Talon Horton Tucker or something like that to Utah to kind of, you know, juice the offer up a little more. I think there are some avenues. I, I don't know exactly what way they're going to go, but I would be extremely surprised if the Knicks were looking at it from the perspective of like, if we give up anyone and everyone but RJ, this is a win. Because uh, I, I think that they're not looking to just have a team that's going to be like Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson, RJ Barrett, uh, Mitchell Robinson now who they re-signed, and like whoever else. And it doesn't matter. Like, I don't think they would be looking at it that way. I think they'd be looking at it as like, we don't need to make this move, so we're not going to do it unless we feel like we have flexibility going forward. At least on the surface, you know, if if Randall does stay behind, right, and you're looking at maybe a, a core trio, at least on the top of, of maybe, you know, Mitchell, Brunson, Randall, possibly R.J. Barrett, if you manage to hold on to him without giving him up in the trade package as well. Like, how confident are you in a core of those three or four players moving forward if you're in New York? Like, what do you feel like the ceiling is, at least right away, like starting this next season with a group of of, of those guys? Unfortunately, I think without a mindset adjustment, Julius is sort of the odd man out there. Um, I think that this past year was sort of telling and look like he signed a big contract extension last year, you know, after after the 2021 season. And, you know, Knicks fans were super excited about it. He was super excited about it. But he's said publicly before, you know, during the 2021 season in a Players Tribune article that like, signing the big contract that he signed to come to the Knicks at first was like uh, put a lot of pressure on him and made him feel like he had to do more than, you know, maybe he was capable of or whatever. And he, he overexerted himself and over tried to be like the man. And I think that same thing sort of happened this past year, except for he also just seemed outwardly unhappy with not being like the high usage guy. And so if you get a Donovan Mitchell, who's never been anything but the high usage guy since literally his rookie year, you have Jalen Brunson, who's coming to this team, wanting to find a bigger role for himself. You have RJ Barrett, who was 
sort of burgeoning into a bigger role last year, which was part of what seemed to annoy Randall on the court. Uh, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in a weird situation there where like, I feel like Randall might sort of be the odd man out. That's making things not work as well for the whole team. Um, as far as the other three, I could see them playing well with each other. I mean, one nice thing with Brunson and RJ is that they sort of have come up in environments where they haven't had to be on ball creators to be good. So like, Brunson has played off Luka Doncic before. RJ has played off Julius Randle and stuff before. And, you know, that's been situations that they've been in and succeeded in. So we'll see how it all goes. Um, If I was going to put like a wins cap on it, I don't know. It could work out at its best to like 50 wins or something. It could work out at its worst or maybe even slightly more than that, like a magical season, like what the Knicks had the one year in the Carmelo Anthony years. Or it could work out like this past year. I think I'd probably floor it at like, I don't know, 37 wins roughly like what they got this year and missing the playoffs, which would honestly, you know, after making that sort of money investment and trade investment would be a huge disappointment, obviously. Will Donovan Mitchell be the newest, newest New York and Nick? Will Leon Rose potentially come out on top of any potential deal struck with the Utah Jazz? You're going to have us covered for all of that and more over at Locked on Knicks. Alex, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Always a pleasure to come by, Jackson. Thanks for having me on, man. Coming up, Keegan Murray has been absolutely balling out for the Sacramento Kings. Has he been the most impressive rookie in Summer League? But first, a quick message from our friends over at betonline.net because BetOnline is your number one source for all of your betting needs and sports info. Find the latest developments, league reviews, and news, including this year's Major League Baseball season. They've also got you covered for MMA, UFC, boxing, all the fighting odds. You name it, they've got it. They've got you for golf. Anything you need, they've got you covered over at BetOnline. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information, including live betting, esports, scores, and more. And right now, you can take a look at who the 2023 NBA championship favorites are. The Milwaukee Bucks leading the way at plus 600. Right behind them, the Boston Celtics at plus 625. The reigning champion, Golden State Warriors, third place at plus 650. And then rounding out the top five, you got the LA Clippers at plus 700. The addition of John Wall must have done something big for the LA Clippers and then the Phoenix Suns at plus 750. So for all of that and more, head to the website today to learn more about the trends in action available to you. Bet online. It's where the game starts. And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday, as always, we appreciate you for making Locked On NBA your first listen each and every day. Keegan Murray, the best rookie in NBA Summer League. Joining us now is Matt George from Locked On Kings. You can follow at Matt George SAC on Twitter. Matt, Keegan Murray was balling out in Summer League. He was number four amongst all scorers in Summer League at 23.3 points per game, but he was the only rookie to finish in the top five of all the Summer League leading scores. Shot 50% from the floor, 40% from three, 80.8% from the free throw line, 7.3 boards, two assists. He was on a tear throughout Summer League. I mean, are you, like, just what are your immediate impressions as to what you've seen out of him so far to this point? I know it's Summer League, you take it with a grain of salt, but you have to be really excited about what you've seen out of him so far. I'll pay off your tease right away. Damn right, Keegan Murray was the best rookie in Summer League. And in my opinion, it wasn't particularly close. Look, Keegan... 
got the opportunity to play against the the best of the best in terms of this draft class. He and, and Paolo kind of split halves. I know the Orlando Magic ended up winning that game, but Keegan Murray had the big moment hitting that big shot in uh, game one of Summer League uh, for the Sacramento Kings, that is, uh, to send that game into uh, overtime. And, and what I love about Keegan's Summer League as a whole is he showed us different things on different nights. He scored over 20 points in every single game. If you include the California Classic three games that he played, he played seven games in total, scored 20 or more points in six out of seven of them. Uh, the other game, he scored nine points and also had nine rebounds for a near double-double. Uh, took over, ha- had a rough first half against the Indiana Pacers, took over in the second half to help the Kings uh, win that game against Indiana and went right after uh, Benedict Matherin. And then I loved his performance against Chet Holmgren and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now the box score is going to show you, or the final score is going to show you that Oklahoma City won that game. But either looking at the box score or watching the game, I'm sorry, Oklahoma City Thunder fans. I'm sorry, Chet Holmgren fans. He's a great player. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do with OKC. He couldn't hold a candle to Keegan Murray in this game. Keegan had the most aggressive that Keegan was attacking the basket all summer was when Chet Holmgren was on him. He went right at the best shot blocker in summer league, the best shot blocker in the draft class and had a field day with him. Also had one of his best scoring games, period, against Oklahoma City. So, I mean, all things considered, Keegan Murray has shown us everything that we wanted to see and more. He's been even better than I expected. And you know, Jackson, I was super high on him. I wanted the Kings to draft him. I'm so glad they did. I'm glad to see so many people, not just in Sacramento, but around the NBA landscape, coming around on him because he absolutely was worthy of a fourth overall pick, which a lot of people didn't think so on draft night. Yeah, is that is that kind of the perception that you're, you're seeing or, or receiving at this point? Is that you know his summer league performance or performances really? Because again, there were again six out of his seven scoring, uh, you know, absurd numbers. Really, you only look at the one you know game where he scored nine points, and that might be the one where you say, okay, maybe a bit of an underwhelming performance in that one. But then to bounce back in the next five games and just have a really solid overall performance, do you see maybe the the perception changing a little bit, silencing some of the the critics or the doubters about Keegan Murray being selected fourth overall? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, what what critically are you going to talk about with Keegan Murray's game? Now, I'm not saying that there's not areas that he can definitely improve. And of course, like you said, it's summer league, so you take everything with a grain of salt. But at the same time, too, Keegan Murray showed things that regardless of competition, you have to be impressed by. And in particular, the big shot that he hit against the Orlando Magic to send that game into overtime, it doesn't matter who's playing for that Orlando Magic team. What he showed in the final seconds of that game, the Kings making that comeback, him forcing the turnover. Actually, it wasn't him, but he ended up getting the ball um, off the turnover, only had a few seconds left, had the wherewithal to recognize where he was on the floor, where he needed to get for the open three-point shot. Defenders closing out on him, so he pump faked. Paolo and another defender jumped by him still recognizes he has enough time to go through his motion and he already has a really naturally quick release I mean that shows a level of composure and poise that typically takes NBA players years to develop he has that right away and that composure is something that's very consistent with his game so absolutely people are coming around on him they're giving him the praise uh, that he deserves now I'm not for these alleged anonymous scouts that are suddenly saying they thought that he was the second best player in the draft get the hell out of here with that nonsense like we all heard we all saw Jay Nivey was supposed to be better than Keegan Murray he might still be Keegan Murray wasn't on the tier of the top three hopefully he will be one day he might never be but anybody that's starting to say that they knew all along that this is what Keegan Murray is going to be take it from the guy who is as high on Keegan as anybody here in Sacramento I didn't know Keegan Murray was going to be this good 
you talk about his his composure, his poise, being in the building for that last second shot to send it to overtime against the Magic was something else. The moment he pump faked and the two defenders went flying by him, I was like, this is a bucket. This this ball is going in. Before he even elevated for the shot, I was like, it's going to happen. It's almost like one of those storybook endings that kind of has to happen. Unfortunately, the Kings didn't go on to win that game. I wanted them to win that game so bad, Matt. They deserved it. But... It, you know, you talk about the poise, the composure. To you, are those the most impressive kind of traits that Keegan Murray is bringing to the table right now? Or is there something else that stands out to you about his game that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, the composure and the high basketball IQ really jump uh, to, the, to the front of the line for me. I will also say, too, the quickness of his release is something I didn't fully recognize and appreciate through watching him play in college and watching him in, uh, in like highlight packages leading up to the draft. But Watching him play in person, he gets that shot off really, really quick. And he showed us something, gave us a glimpse of something against the Pacers last Sunday that I'm hoping can be part of his game consistently. Because if it is, then he takes his game to another level. And that was creating off the dribble. He had a step back, quick release three uh, from from straight away that was nothing but net. A couple uh, possessions later, he does another step back, goes behind the back, hesitates, and then shoots, ended up missing the shot. But you can see him looking to try and score off of the dribble a little bit. We know Keegan Murray is a ridiculously good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, which is going to be great alongside De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis. But if Keegan Murray has the potential to create for himself, one of the things that that I started thinking about as Summer League went on is the Sacramento Kings can probably get away with taking De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis out of the game at the same time and leaving Keegan Murray on the floor and the offensive drop-off won't be that significant. He showed that he's able to be effective in a lot of different roles, attacking the basket, shooting, a primary focus on offense, just scoring within the flow of the offense. He did it all this summer. Is there anything that you were maybe hoping to see a, a little bit more out of him as Summer League went on? I, unfortunately, we were we were robbed of the opportunity to see Keegan Murray versus Jabari Smith. I know you saw him face off against some of the other top prospects across Summer League. I, I will never forgive the Kings for shutting down Keegan Murray, although you know playing eight games across the California Classic and actual Vegas Summer League might be a tad overkill for a, a top rookie, so I don't blame them for shutting him down. But was there something you were maybe looking for to see out of his game that you didn't get a glimpse at yet so far? Look, Paulo Bancaro was shut down after two games, so Keegan Murray can get shut down after seven. I think that's fair, and I understand too because I did want to see that that uh, Jabari Smith Jr. versus Keegan Murray game. Um, I'm also I've seen early odds come out for Rookie of the Year, and I've seen Keegan Murray is like sixth on that list, which is absolutely atrocious behind the top uh, top four, Jaden I or top three, Jaden Ivy, and and one other. It's just dumb. Like uh, I, I'm. Keegan Murray deserves to be much higher than where he's at on that list. But, hey, I'm not an odds maker, and maybe that's easy money for Sacramento Kings fans. I'm not sure. Uh, But wanting to see more out of him, it's less of a gripe from him. And, well, I mean, maybe I could have asked for more from him, too. Like, I wanted to see Keegan be a little more demanding. I wanted to see Keegan take over a little bit more. Now, he did in certain stretches of certain games. But when watching him compared to watching Paolo Bancaro, Paolo was touching the ball basically every time up the floor. The offense was running through Paolo. There have been large stretches of time this summer where Keegan's been in the game, and he'll touch the ball, but he's not a primary focus on offense, which both shows that to be a 20 points per game score and still not be the absolute go-ahead primary focus offensively, that shows that he's capable of scoring within the flow of the offense, which in theory should work really well with the current top guys in Sacramento, right? But at the same time, too, if he's the best player on a summer league team, and of course he was not even close, 
I wanted to see him featured a little bit more. And maybe that was on him to be a little more demanding in those spots. So if I had to be nitpicky, also, I mean, he doesn't really create for his teammates. He's not really known as a playmaker. So if I want to be nitpicky about those two things, that's what I can point to. But it's really hard to find anything that wasn't impressive or I didn't like about Keegan Murray's summer. Nimius Cato was a name that popped up a little bit across summer league. Any other any other standouts for the Kings on their summer league roster that, that deserve a shout out here? Yeah, Cato definitely does. I think Cato has a, a good chance of actually earning uh, a, a legit NBA contract. He's a two-way player. Is going to go into next season as a two-way player, and rightfully so. But a couple of years ago, we saw both Chemezi Metu, who's still on the roster, and Damian Jones, who just signed with the Los Angeles Lakers, go from two-way players to full-time contracts. I think Kada definitely has an opportunity to do that. His shot blocking and his rebounding for his size is definitely something that's appealing to the Kings. Plus, for someone who's as big as he is, he moves really, really well. I was really impressed with his touch around the rim now. He also needs to be more physical for someone who's as big as he is. So there are definitely things to to nitpick about his game as well. And look, he's a two-way player. So I'm not talking about someone who's going to come in and all of a sudden be a, a major rotation player for the Sacramento Kings. Keon Ellis, also the other two-way player for the Kings. The Kings signed him to a two-way contract on draft night immediately following the draft out of Alabama. He had a really, really solid summer league. The only area where he did not look good was when the Kings tried to use him as kind of a primary ball handler and a, and a, and a point guard at, at times. He did not play well there. But as a 3-and-D wing, played really, really well defensively, shot 42%, I think, from three-point range. I didn't see him miss a shot every time he shot in front of opposing benches, and he always turned around to make sure those benches heard about it. Uh, so I like Keon Ellis a lot. I think there's a good chance that he can carve out some kind of role with the Sacramento Kings eventually because three and D's are hard to come by in the NBA and especially hard to come by here in Sacramento. Will Keegan Murray's summer league success translate directly into the NBA? Should he be in the running or at least maybe one of the top favorites for the NBA rookie of the year award right now? You're going to have us covered for all of that and more over at locked on Kings. Matt, I appreciate you stopping by locked on NBA with me. Anytime Jackson. Coming up, Jabari Smith Jr. looking like a transformational piece defensively for Houston, but has he been the best rookie so far for the Rockets? We're going to get there in just one moment. And final segment here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, appreciate you for making Locked On NBA your first listen each and every day. We are free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Jabari Smith Jr. looking like a transformational piece for Houston, but has he been the best rookie so far for the Rockets? It's me, Jackson Gatlin, host of Locked on Rockets. You can follow me on Twitter at JT Gatlin. So taking a look at Houston Rockets Summer League, the three players that they just drafted from this past year's NBA draft, Jabari Smith Jr. at number three overall, Tari Eason at pick 17, and then Ty Ty Washington at pick 29. We'll get to those two other guys here in just a second. So let's start with Jabari Smith Jr. And for someone projected to be the number one overall pick for so much of the pre-draft process and then falling into the Houston Rockets lap at pick number three, has Jabari Smith been somewhat underwhelming in summer league throughout his five games that he played? I think if you look at just the box score, right? You just pull up the box score numbers 
Maybe you'd be expecting a little bit more for the guy who fell into the Rockets' lap at pick number three or for the guy who is supposedly the consensus number one overall guy for so much of the pre-draft process. I do think if you're just looking at the box score numbers, maybe you would be a little bit underwhelmed as to what you're seeing. But when you actually watch Jabari Smith Jr. play and the impact that he has on the game, first off, he has far exceeded my expectations for him defensively. Coming out, I projected him to be kind of this player that has all the measurables, all the physicals, all the gifts and skills to be an all-NBA caliber defender at some point in his career. I didn't expect it to translate as quickly as it has. And when I what I mean by translate is just, it's summer league, so you take it with a grain of salt, but the way that Jabari Smith was able to blow up so many sequences defensively, getting into whether it was on switches, whether it was him defending the pick and roll, whether it was him guarding on the interior, blocking shots, protecting the rim, he just did a little bit of everything defensively to where the Rockets' defense looked night and day difference when he was on the floor versus when he was off the floor for this summer league team. He effectively played the five spot for the Rockets in summer league because the player who was supposed to be their starting summer league center in Usman Garuba suffered an ankle injury and was held out for the entirety of summer league, unfortunately. So Jabari Smith essentially playing out of position, but he has the size and the length to play the five. And in summer league, it's not that much of a big deal. And he really held down the defense for the Houston Rockets. And then offensively, I think we got a glimpse at some things that we weren't really expecting out of Jabari Smith. Now, you know, there were a couple games where the efficiency really just wasn't there for Jabari. And we'll talk about the numbers here in just a moment. But I think offensively, we got some glimpses at things that he wasn't necessarily supposed to be able to do right away, right out of the gate. Jabari Smith Jr., one of the criticisms for him coming out of college was the fact that he didn't have a handle, right? That he couldn't really put the ball on the floor, couldn't really create for himself at a high level. And I always thought those comments, those criticisms were kind of overblown. And I think he hushed some of those criticisms a little bit in summer league because we saw routinely where he would either attack off the catch and get and drive into the paint and finish at the rim. Or even moments where he created for himself, where he put the ball on the floor, kind of, you know, attacking out of a triple threat stance or just out on the perimeter, beating his defender, powering up through contact, getting to the free throw line. These are kind of like cherries on top of a player who wasn't exactly supposed to be able to do some of those things right out of the gate. So seeing glimpses of that already is a really exciting thing to add on to the the talents, the skills that Jabari Smith Jr. is supposed to bring to the table day one for the Houston Rockets. Now, I mentioned the efficiency there. Jabari Smith's shooting was like touted as his number one skill coming out of Auburn, right? Bruce Pearl, his former head coach, said that he was, you know, the the best shooter in college history over six foot eleven or six foot ten. And he shot 42% from three in college. However, in summer league, he only shot 37.3% from the or 37.3% from the floor and 25.9% from three. So should that be concerning if you're looking at Jabari Smith and thinking, well, he's supposed to be a shooter and the shooting numbers aren't exactly translating. I think that's the one thing that you don't have to worry about with Jabari Smith. There's so much of a sample size from his college days from before that to think, you know what? He's going to be fine. He's got a great looking form, great looking shot. There's nothing mechanically wrong with it. I think maybe if you're if you're worried about it, look, this just happened right after the NBA draft. He gets thrown into his first NBA action in summer league. I don't want to necessarily sit here and make excuses for it. But at the same time, you know, shooting 42% in college isn't exactly an easy thing to do. Yes, there's a difference between the distance for the college three point line 
and the distance for the NBA three-point line, and maybe that played a bit of a factor. There were some people commenting on the fact that Jabari Smith's shot looks a little bit flatter now in summer league than it did in college, how he had a bit more arc on it. That's something that can be worked on and tweaked a little bit over the summer to make sure he has the proper lift on his shot, maybe get a little bit more legs under him as he's shooting. And throughout the five summer league games that we saw, maybe where there were some moments where Jabari was kind of rushing his shot a little bit, maybe overthinking things here and there, especially after that game two where he went four of 19, I believe it was off the top of my head. And, you know, those types of things can be a little frustrating. As a shooter, sometimes the ball just doesn't go in. But I think worrying about Jabari Smith's shot is the last thing that anybody should be concerned about for him as far as his long-term success is concerned. Now, when it comes to Jabari, the most impressive thing about him so far that that really stands out is I, I already kind of raved about his defense, but you know, I thought he was going to be like an all-NBA caliber defender, right? I truly think he's got the ability to be a transformational defensive piece, a la the same type of transformational defensive piece that a Rudy Gobert is or that Chet Holmgren also projects to be. Because you, if you watch the way that he impacts defense when he's on the floor, one, he is constantly communicating with his teammates. He is quarterbacking the Rockets' defense when he's on the floor, constantly calling things out for his teammates, calling out switches, calling out where guys are going, pushing guys in the right direction at times, communicating during dead balls where he's saying, hey, we're going to switch this. Hey, let's. Ha- this is how we defend this. And seeing that level of communication from a 19-year-old kid is absurd. And then not only that, but the way that it actually translates in the gameplay. He was consistently blowing up different plays, forcing turnovers, causing, you know, generating blocked shots and turning those opportunities into easy offensive opportunities for the rest of his teammates on the roster. So looking at him with his physical gifts, with the size that he's got, the fact that he may not be done growing, he's already six feet 11. He's already six foot 11. And the fact that he may grow another inch, inch and a half before he's done completely growing, thinking that he could be a a legitimate seven footer with the ability to guard smaller players on the perimeter, as well as the ability to guard the interior around the rim. He could be a defensive unicorn, a, a player that completely elevates the floor of a team defensively. And while originally I thought this that he might have the chops to be, again, an all-NBA caliber defender, I truly think that he might have the chops to be a defensive player of the year type player further down the line in his career. Now, the Rockets did have two other rookies on display in Vegas Summer League. Tari Eason drafted 17th overall and Ty Ty Washington, who was selected 29th overall. Tari Eason looks like he may be one of the steals of the draft at pick 17 because he was playing like a lottery prospect in NBA Summer League. And frankly, as impressive as Jabari Smith Jr. was, I think that Tari Easton was the best rookie for the Houston Rockets throughout Vegas Summer League. Of all the players to participate in Summer League, Tari Easton was the number one rebounder of players who played more than 20 minutes a night. He averaged 10 and a half rebounds per game in Summer League. He plays kind of like a slightly more in-control Corey Brewer, a bigger Corey Brewer. He's got the same physicals almost as a Kawhi Leonard. These massive hands, six foot seven, six foot eight frame, can guard bigger players, can stick on the perimeter with smaller players. And he was an absolute terror in transition throughout summer league. Again, getting the rebound, getting out in transition, kicking the pass to somebody else, or just finishing it himself at the rim. 
And he, he made, just like Jabari Smith, he made a ton of impressive defensive plays throughout Summer League. He had one where it was a defensive highlight just before the half against the Sacramento Kings, where, or I apologize, against the Portland Trailblazers, where they were getting ready to run an action, pick and roll happens, they're getting ready to dish the ball to the other side of the court, and... Tar Eason isn't even in the frame. He isn't even in the shot on the camera when the pass is being made. And somehow he shoots the gap, gets a steal, and gets out in transition and almost finishes the play on the other end, gets fouled in transition. But the fact that he wasn't even on the camera and still managed to get that steal was absolutely absurd. He's playing like an absolute lottery prospect. He's going to be somebody you absolutely want to keep an eye on as far as rookies this next NBA season. And then Ty Ty Washington. Very impressive point guard prospect out of Kentucky. Showed a lot of promise in his game, both the ability to play on the basketball and off ball. At times, he was running the Rockets offense, and at other times, he was basically playing the two-guard spot for the Houston Rockets, kind of being put in that catch-and-shoot mold, attack off the catch, rather than facilitating and orchestrating the offense. He looked really good facilitating both in the half court and in transition. His passing ability is true. Like, his ability to break down a defense, get into the teeth of the defense, and then find the open man was second to none on the Rockets' summer league roster he has a lot of cp3 isms to his game and i say that as somebody who watched chris paul in houston for two years and got really familiar with chris paul's game seeing some of those that same like craftiness shiftiness that ty ty washington has there's a lot of that in cp3's cp3's game and there's a lot of that in ty ty washington's game so he's another rookie to definitely keep your eyes on so how will Jabari Smith Jr. look for the Houston Rockets moving forward? How will he pair with guys like Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. once the season starts in Houston? I'll keep you posted for all of that and more right over at Locked on Rockets. That's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. That's Apple, Spotify, Google, the Odyssey app, free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA, like, comment, subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts.